Welcome to the 371st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Elizabeth Elsesser, author of In Case of Emergency, How Technologies Mediate Crisis and Normalize Inequality, which is forthcoming in the spring of next year. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 3rd, 2021, there are 5,011,786 deaths from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, she could really look beyond people's flaws and see their potential. Okanomowak paraprofessional dies at age 32 from COVID-19. This is written by Evan Frank, appeared in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Even when Kelly Burnett was young, she wanted to help others. When she was in high school or even middle school, my oldest son was diagnosed with autism, said Christina Klein, Burnett's sister. She really took an interest in special needs kids then and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. From there, she was a therapist at Wisconsin Early Autism Project for a while and moved on to be a paraprofessional. Burnett, who grew up in Mokwanago and moved from Oconomowoc to Heartland in the last couple of years, died October 25th of COVID-19, her sister confirmed. Burnett was 32 years old. She worked as a paraprofessional for the past five years at Silver Lake Intermediate School in Oconomowoc. Kelly will be deeply missed by her family, our school, and our community, Silver Lake Principal Jill Marr wrote to parents in an October 26 letter. She had such a positive impact on the lives around her. Kelly was a selfless person who was always willing to help others and was so supportive of her family, students, and staff. According to Oconomowoc Area School District's COVID-19 dashboard, as of October 27th, most recent data available, there are 26 students and three staff members throughout the district who currently have COVID-19. The district currently has face-to-face -face learning five days a week. Face coverings are recommended for students, staff, and visitors. On school buses and vans, face coverings are required by federal mandate. Vaccinations are not required for students, staff, or visitors. It's unknown whether Burnett had been vaccinated. Burnett and her husband, Tom, had three sons, Max, Luca, and Benny. A fourth child, Noah Joseph, was stillborn during Burnett's fight with COVID-19. It was very much about teaching the children and making sure they knew about civil rights and things like that, Klein said. The past year, she was actually homeschooling them. She was actually homeschooling them, so she would go to school, and when she would get home from school, she would teach them. Klein said when her sister would walk into a room, everything would shift. She could really look beyond people's flaws and see their potential, Klein said. She was able to really see these kids who maybe themselves didn't even think they could do that much and see they could do a lot. She inspired them to do that. Also, it was very important to her that kids were aware of other people's differences and cultures. Burnett attended River Glen Christian Church in Waukesha. She was always the person who would find the loneliest kid in the room and go be friends with them, even when she was a little girl, Klein said. Everyone thinks their loved one was super great, but she really was. I don't know of anyone who didn't like her. GoFundMe account was set up to assist Burnett's family. As, October, as of October 29th, it had raised over $5,000 in funds. She loved her family so much, Klein said. She was always there if we needed anything.
Okay, I'd like to turn to conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Elizabeth Elsessor. Elizabeth Elsessor is an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia and a senior faculty fellow at the Miller Center for Public Affairs. Her research focuses on media access as a variable and uneven phenomena that advantages some and marginalizes, marginalizes others. She's the author of Restricted Access, Media, Disability, and the Politics of Participation, and the book In Case of Emergency, How Technologies Mediate Crisis and Normalize Inequality, which is forthcoming in spring of next year. Elizabeth Elsesser, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I listened to the podcast uh, intermittently over the past 370 episodes, I suppose. Uh, so I'm excited to be here and honored to talk about how my work fits into this bigger picture. Intermittent is the way to do it. I, I don't know how anybody <laughs> could have listened to all, except I think my in-laws have, John and Susan Merling, and I always give them a shout out for that. They are my most Hi. devoted <laughs> listeners. Um, so look, let's start the way I usually do, which is just to find out um, where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Yeah, so I am based in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and I looked it up this morning. It looks like we have a seven day average of about 1300 cases per day in the state of Virginia, uh, which is down from a peak in September when Delta was higher. Um, just about 75% of adults in Virginia are vaccinated uh, and we are in the midst of a flurry of scheduling for uh, children 5 to 11, which is also where my children uh, are. Um, so we are seeing those scheduled in the next week, week and a half to get started. Uh, so all in all, um, as COVID goes, Virginia has been um, not the worst place to be. Uh, we've had at UVA mask mandates, now vaccine mandates for students, for faculty, for staff, uh, which means that while obviously we still have cases and our hospitals still serves a larger Central Virginia region, um, in Charlottesville, uh, it is beginning to feel more normal, but also feel like a new normal in which we become used to certain measures of distancing, masking um, as part of our everyday. How did that play out on the campus? Was there much um, discussion, argument, anger at all, or did things move pretty seamlessly into that sort of new mode of living and, and learning? I think there were um, some bumps in the road. Uh, certainly there were a few um, crackdowns early on where students were not masking or there were large gatherings uh, in 2020 when there shouldn't have been large gatherings. Um, and by and large, I would say that people acclimated to some degree. Uh, and that going back to in-person classes this fall, um, the vaccine mandate was very welcomed by most students. Uh, the mask mandate has been harder for them to um, agree with, right? They feel like they've already been vaccinated. They've already taken some sorts of steps. Um, but there's been a real effort to sort of protect the students and the community uh, through continued masking. Uh, I think that's going to be there are different kinds of public health messages there, and it's hard. I mean, you get the vaccine and you forget about it and you move on with your life. The masking helps prevent the breakthrough infections. I had a conversation yesterday with two advocates for long COVID research and mm -hmm. and policy, and um, you don't want to get it. I mean, we've talked about it like you will die or not die. and That's not the right uh, choice. I think it's you don't want to have it. And, yeah. and describing what they've been through was just uh, really terrifying. Mm -hmm. So um, you had an election uh, there in Virginia. I think everybody knows about this, even here in South Korea, we know about this. And um, uh, I know you're at the Miller Center, but you're not a political scientist. So Correct. Uh, I, I don't want to have you read the <laughs> read the um, all of the exit polls for me. However, I'm curious about how much the pandemic played as a as a issue in the campaign. To my knowledge, the pandemic was not a focus in either Yunkin or McAuliffe's campaign. Uh, what we did see was, um, I think Yunkin's campaign 
emphasized the sort of um, evils of critical race theory, but they tied it to very real frustrations that people had with online school over the past year, right? They tied this idea of parents being concerned about the children's education, which is a reasonable thing. My children were in online school um, to critical race theory and to a broader sort of re-entrenchment of whiteness in the state after what's been a really eventful year of taking down the statues of um, the case against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally uh, currently moving through the courts. Uh, we have had some real shifts in Virginia in the past couple of years, and I think some backlash to that uh, is expected. Uh, and some of it is um, sobering in that I think the pandemic doesn't necessarily play into the campaigns or the issues of this election. But um, under Northam's uh, administration, we had an executive order um, requiring masks in K through 12 schools. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that we're going to see go away very quickly uh, when we have a change in administration. Well, thank you for for talking about that. I think it is really I'll be watching um, to see how much pandemic is plays a role in these various campaigns. I guess I'm a little surprised that it didn't play a bigger role there. But, um, you know, to shift the conversation, it's interesting you point out, you know, even the online schooling could be an area um, where you could have a, a debate, like a real discussion and debate. Um, but yeah. to, to to not talk about that in terms of of protection of kids or teachers and to flip it over to talk about critical race theory. I guess to me, that's just like, um, it's a sleight of hand. It's, yeah. it's a sleight of hand. And it's also, I mean, yeah, well, those Robert E. Lee statues, uh, were big. The one in Richmond was, uh, enormous. It's down, but maybe this is a bit of a backlash to that in some ways, I guess we'll, we'll find out. Well, thanks for talking about that. Um, yeah, of course. I've been asking guests also if they wouldn't mind describing a, pandemic memory that encapsulates this time for them. I wonder if you would, would do the same. Sure. I think um, I want to start off just by saying that I've been very lucky. Um, no one in my family has had COVID. Everyone in my extended family has been um, eager to be vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, we've been uh, as safe as we can be, uh, which I am absolutely not minimizing which means, however, that some of my strongest sort of COVID memories are about the decision-making that went on as a parent of young children. When COVID uh, came into our lives, my daughter was three, right? She was still in daycare. Uh, and so these moments of making decisions, like do we send her back to a daycare setting, um, were intense uh, moments of decision and anxiety and um, fear on all sides, right? Because it's not an easy decision to send a child uh, into a setting like that in that moment, uh, but it's also not easy to commit to keeping a three-year-old at home and continuing to work from home um, without childcare. Uh, and so we had several of those decision moments um, my daughter's five now, she's in kindergarten, she's in person wearing a mask. Uh, and these things shift, but I think that that experience, that sense of, um, as a parent, like taking protective action uh, was really intense in a way that I actually hadn't experienced uh, prior to COVID. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. I think that for many of us, I count myself, there too that was i mean aside from if you to worry about if someone in the family was sick that was the next thing you were going to pour your concern into and it was a hard it was a hard time i know a lot of people are not past that yet they still have some kind yeah. of modified modified learning for their children um so let's talk a bit about your research and i'd like to start if we could by talking about your uh, first book which appeared with nyu press restricted access media disability and the politics of participation i'd like to talk about it and particularly the way you see that book now look looking back through the lens of COVID. yeah that's an interesting question because i'm proud of the work in that book but it is um, absolutely 
part of a different sort of era in how we think about um, disability and uh, online media, frankly. And I think that has to do with um, the framing of the book itself, which is that I was interested in how claims about how the internet fosters participation and makes things more accessible uh, did and did not play out in disability communities. Uh, and so that book offers um, archival work and ethnographic work to try to understand what digital accessibility uh, looks like and why it looks that way, uh, why we have the sort of guidelines that we have, what kind of workarounds disabled people have put into place and so on. And so I think a lot of the things that we've come to understand better uh, through COVID uh, were already evident in some ways in that book. Um, because that book chronicles a situation in which for many disabled people, uh, online access was partial at best. Uh, this was um, written even before things like the Target and Domino's lawsuits that extend digital access to commercial spaces. Um, disability inclusion wasn't taken seriously by a lot of institutions. Accessible event planning was not something on many people's radar. Uh, and yet at the same time, we already had disability communities using online tools in innovative and productive ways to socialize, to innovate, uh, and to support one another. All of these are things that we see sort of in the COVID area when this becomes something that quote unquote everyone has to deal with. Um, Zoom cocktail hours and uh, remote learning and all of these things are things that disabled people have done or asked for for decades. Uh, and COVID revealed that these things were possible uh, with sufficient will, uh, which in some ways becomes a sad coda to that book, right? The things that were not possible as of 2016 were not, you know, technically impossible. They were uh, a matter of choices and decisions that were being made. So it must have been quite something as the pandemic was unfolding because you had these connections made through research, I suppose, in disability activist communities and people who'd been advocating um, for various kinds of accommodation. Uh, and so then all of a sudden the whole world, the world that has the ability to, shifts over into Zoom. Mm -hmm. and, and and this has been described to me by others. So like, oh, you all caught up to, yeah. to what, what we've been living with, right? What, so what was that like? What kind of conversations were you having in, in March of 2020? So I think um, one thing that was really poignant for me in March in particular was that I was in the middle of teaching a disability and media course, mm -hmm. which I had already designed around the idea that students might not always be able to be present and might take longer to complete certain assignments and might need multiple means of accessing materials. And so our movement online was oddly smooth. The classroom component was only ever part of what we were doing. Um, and to see that in contrast to the scramble that a lot of my colleagues were put through uh, to try to figure out how to reinvent their courses because they had never given these things serious consideration and um, was a real uh, i can't find the word i want but it was a, a real sort of justification of the work i'd already done like okay this is the right thing to do uh, and certainly access increased in those moments um, but i just want to point out too that it was always even then partial uh, Zoom captions were a premier tier feature for about almost a year uh, before they became rolled out more broadly. Um, and you still have to ask the host of a meeting to turn them on. Uh, so for someone who needs captions, right, there's still a, but a moment of negotiation. Access is still something that has to be discussed and fought for um, in these spaces. Do you have other examples of this sort of partial accommodation things where you know maybe it gets to a certain distance and then for people who might not need the accommodation they say oh we've made an effort and, and i'm glad we were able to do that and it stops there yeah i think um actually accommodations around attendance uh, in a university setting are something where we see that partial um, structure happen a lot um, a lot of people have been told that they need to be flexible with attendance for students who have 
COVID or a roommate with COVID or something COVID related. Um, but you always should have been flexible for students with chronic illness, right? You always had students who were going to need different kinds of accommodation around attendance and maybe not ask for them. Um, so there's a way in which we still see COVID treated as an exception that's gonna go away uh, as opposed to be connecting it to a larger experience of disability and chronic illness uh, that frankly is not going to go away. Uh, and as we discussed with long COVID a second ago, um, is probably going to be exacerbated and expanded. I just want to come uh, you know, back to your, to your book and the, the, in the subtitle, you use the phrase, the politics of participation. And I'm curious about, about and how you see that, um, mm -hmm. you know, bringing it maybe not into sort of like two party politics or, you know, at, the, at that level, although that's interesting too. Um, what are the politics of, of participation? What are the vested interests against participation and, and who's having the most success at, in, in, in moving the needle in terms of bringing public awareness that this is a political issue, it doesn't move on its own, and mm -hmm. uh, framing it in such a way that the public can get their mind around it and actually get behind accommodation as a, as a principle? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because when I think about the politics of participation, I'm thinking about it in a, again, a context that feels distant now, and in which we thought that online participation was a self-evident good. Uh, and I don't think we think that anymore, right? I don't think we need to push back on that in exactly the same way. Um, but I do think that part of what I was attempting to demonstrate is that participation is not the same for everyone that participation looks different and that the kinds of participation that we value have political implications for the kinds of voices that are heard uh, and experiences that are normalized. So I think part of what comes out of that uh, is a sense that um, certainly uh, in some moments of our digital history, disabled voices have been largely absent, right? There has been a lack of participation due to inaccessibility, which makes it harder than to advocate for accessibility. Uh, and so we, like I said, have seen changes to that in the past 10 years. It doesn't look like it did uh, when I first did this work. Um, but some of it is um, still worthwhile in that some forms of participation are still valued differently than others. And the forms of participation that we see among disabled communities are often forms of participation that are glossed over uh, when we talk about um, what is valuable or what is uh, recognizable. Um, I think taking it to protests and electoral politics, uh, one way we see that is that um, there was a period in which people were very dismissive of online activism. Mm -hmm. Right. You're just virtue signaling. That's just, right. you know, uh, clicktivism. It doesn't actually change anything. You need boots on the streets, et cetera. Um, but that's the kind of participation that some people can offer. Right. If you have limited mobility, if you have uh, chronic illness, if you have other kinds of barriers to in-person political participation, then online participation is what you can do. And devaluing that because it is you know, different, looks different, um, means writing out people who are doing that work. Wow, you're, it, it's really fascinating the way you're, it, just as you said, to describing a, a world in this sense that has changed so much since 2020, you know, the idea that someone couldn't meaningfully participate in the political process or in education if they were distant, Mm -hmm. And then everything we saw with Black Lives Matter, yeah, I mean, the focus has been on what happened in the streets, but an enormous amount of action, activism took place, obviously, at a distance. Um, Absolutely. And then, of course, with education. I, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about who the decision makers are in some of these cases. I think if we're, mm -hmm. you know, working in universities, uh, most of us, if we're educators, are used to interacting um, with some version of an Office of Disability Resources, Office of Disability Services. I think the same would be true for larger companies, maybe not even for medium-sized companies, that they would have a dedicated office there. So, I mean, I guess what I 
I'm sort of curious about is not necessarily what happens with the courtroom, but what happens at the point of actually administering accommodation, administering rules. Have you seen much change in what happens in those offices, who works in those offices, how they understand the law and their own role in bringing participation to life? Yes and no. Uh, I think we've seen some moments of um, relaxation in which, for instance, those offices stopped asking for proof of diagnosis uh, for some accommodations. Um, they had a more streamlined process, particularly for students, but also sometimes for uh, faculty and staff or employees. But we also see a reluctance to make those changes. Uh, as you mentioned, having an Office of Disability Services or a dedicated person uh, is not <clears throat> super typical, right? Universities often have one or the other, uh, but even at many universities, if you're a disabled faculty member, it's very unclear who you're supposed to talk to about accommodation. HR, maybe, uh, and HR very rarely has somebody dedicated to this. Uh, so um, one thing to sort of think about this moving forward, uh, there's a document put out called Beyond High Risk uh, by a group called the Accessible Campus Action Alliance uh, that tries to lay out the kinds of changes that are necessary to learn from COVID and make the changes that would can make universities continue to be accessible. Uh, one thing in there that I think is particularly important is talking about funding and hiring. A lot of the times we treat uh, accessibility for disability as if it is um, unskilled labor. Uh, when faculty members are asked to record their own lectures and nobody checks to see if they captioned them and nobody checks to see if the PDFs are accessible uh, and there's no staff member who can tell you how to make your PDFs accessible if you need to, uh, you have a whole mountain of work that's being put on people who don't know how to do it and don't necessarily know why they need to. Uh, you have disabled students who are often being asked to do this work for themselves uh, because maybe their professors don't know how. So tell your professor how to make your course accessible. In that shift to remote access, what I would have liked to see is the hiring of people who actually know something about disability accommodation and specifically um, digital media accessibility. Uh, and that rarely happens. Uh, and so that I think is one of those signs that the expansion of access was always envisioned as temporary. Uh, there was no investment in it um, at the level of funding and hiring. There was always a sense that we can do this for a little while and then pull back to a more reasonable normal. Is that what you're seeing right now in terms of the Zoom transition in higher ed? And I assume by extension, any, any companies um, that have gone uh, online since the beginning of the pandemic, that it was it was treated as sort of a all hands on deck to make this happen administratively, and then those offices are not going to grow post pandemic. I think that's what I'm seeing is that those offices are not going to grow, uh, and that that accommodation is increasingly being denied. Uh, there have been several instances of faculty members who are immunocompromised. Uh, asking not to return to the classroom uh, as a matter of ADA accommodations and being told that that's an unreasonable accommodation because it fundamentally changes the nature of the service. Well, we all fundamentally changed in that way for a, a year, right? We've seen that we can do online education, um, but we're also seeing a real reluctance to treat that as a viable accommodation moving forward. This is something I think we're going to need a lot more research and attention to because I know, you know, throughout last year, disability activists, at least the ones I talked to, there was hope, kind of mm -hmm. measured hope that this moment was a moment of sort of broad education, you know, that mm -hmm. yes, you can actually ha participate fully. It's just different. It takes some learning, um, but at a distance and that also this accommodation is um, it shouldn't be stigmatizing. It's, it is what it is. It's an accommodation to allow people to do the things that they need to do, work, live, and go to school. But I was worried about that in this sense that, that to advancing fundamentally, if you're thinking about advancing civil rights, the idea was that 
the great majority of people would become aware of it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a civil right that everybody should have. And, and I don't know if that discourse really ever took place in that way. I think it, yeah. it, it sort of broke down into, oh, we should get back or we shouldn't get back. But the deeper questions about what does it mean to not be in person and what that might mean for everybody, I, I didn't hear that discourse the way I wanted to hear it. I guess maybe you were listening more closely than I was. No, I, and I didn't hear it either. Um, there was very much, if we look at specifically sort of the return to normalcy of the past couple of months, uh, there's very much an address of um, non-disabled people. There's an assumption that you don't have COVID, you're fine, uh, you're not disabled, we should all go back to doing this the old way because that feels good. Uh, there's a sense that a lot of people are being left out of this um, return to normalcy and we're resisting learning from the past year. Uh, it's as if a lot of people want to just erase what happened uh, so that they can continue to think of it as exceptional rather than reframe their understanding of how society could work. want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Elizabeth Elsesser today about media and disability and technology. Um, just another question that I was thinking of since my discussion yesterday with um, uh, Terry Akintunwa and uh, Lisa McCorkle about long COVID. And Lisa McCorkle used this phrase that um, there's an enormous wave of disabled people mm -hmm out there now because of long COVID. And the question um, that I have from that is, and so now I'm thinking about public um, authorities and yeah. government, you know, how well do you think government has done or can do um, at all levels to take that on board in terms of you know, modifying public services to meet what is going to be a, a new disability community uh, that's come out of COVID-19? So I think that's a really interesting question, uh, because I have to say today, I haven't seen much evidence of public entities thinking of this wave in quite those terms. Um, there, again, there's a real strong tendency towards exceptionalism to see long COVID as something that happens to a small number of people rather than see the you know, large number that all of those individuals add up to. Uh, I also think that um, long COVID is an amorphous uh, experience and set of symptoms. And traditionally, when we look at how governments have responded to disability, uh, they have tended to do better with um, concrete uh, and easily identified um, diagnoses or conditions. Um, so for instance, um, histories of disabled veterans have shown that VA hospitals tend to do better with something like amputation and prosthesis than they do with PTSD. Um, this is changing in recent years, but there's definitely a sense that the kinds of accommodations and the kinds of changes that might make uh, life more livable for someone living with uh, long COVID are not easy to pin down. Right. It's not ad captions. It's not get a wheelchair. It's something that actually challenges the way that we think about, um, I would say, both modalities and temporalities of daily life. Right. How do we communicate something in more than one way? How do we allow people to do things at more than one time? These are big and important questions that are at the heart of accommodation for a lot of people is this question of how can I get information in a way that is accessible to me when I need it? And how can I do this in a way that is um, a time when I have the energy, the capacity to engage? 
so I think that things like uh, asynchronicity are still big challenges that we haven't fully understood are going to be with us for a long time. We need to be able to say, include people in the city council meeting, even if they can't be there at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. Uh, and that requires thinking really differently about what civic participation looks like and how people engage uh, with governments and services. I think that's that's really something that we've got to watch and, and asynchronicity idea is a, is a really important one. It's one that um, I've encountered in a different way, just living, moving to South Korea and and noting that, you know, things get scheduled on East Coast time, they get scheduled on UK time, and the rest of the world just has to get, you have to participate at that time or you don't participate. And if it's 3am in mm -hmm. East Asia, well, then that's just sorry, you're not gonna, you know, we'll catch you at the next meeting. It's, yeah, it's not because of any disability, but it, it's a mindset, you know, mm -hmm. that this is when things occur, and you either participate or you don't. It's just yeah. one of the small ways that I think people are reminded um, that, you know, we're kind of locked into dominant frames of when and how we do things. And even small accommodations, even the suggestion of it seems to also provoke some backlash. And I think this comes back also yeah. to the schools issue. Were you surprised by the um, ferocity of some of the backlash to distance learning that was re requested last year? I mean, I, maybe it wasn't in Virginia, but in other states. That became a political flashpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because, for one thing, you know, if you assume that parents are largely my age or younger, uh, we didn't grow up with online learning. We had, you know, a computer lab and maybe some typing classes. Um, and so there's a sense that this is something that is unknown. And certainly in my own experience, this was something that my son's first grade teacher didn't know how to do, right? She was learning as she went and she had very limited support uh, and was doing the best she could. But you see this shift happening and it becomes, I think, just a really hard puzzle as I was talking about earlier, trying to decide what you do to preserve a sense of normalcy for your children, to keep them safe. And um, there are good reasons to think about doing virtual education. There are good reasons to think about doing some kind of modified in-person. Um, parents who were working and were dealing with constant childcare issues um, because that's not how our workday is set up to have our children going to first grade beside us. Just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Elizabeth Elsis or today. Let's talk about your new project, which I presume you started before the pandemic and finished it in the middle of the pandemic. Correct. Um, we have not yet gotten too far into it that people started and completed projects in the pandemic. But um, I know people are excited about this book. It's coming out next year in case of emergency, how technologies mediate crisis and normalize inequality. Uh, why did you write this book? So, I, as you said, I started this before COVID, uh, in part because, you know, one book can't do everything. And one of the things that I left out of the first project uh, was how disability access is treated very differently in emergency contexts than it is in entertainment or even informational contexts. So, it, for instance, we rarely see sign language interpreters except during um, evacuation um, public announcements. Right, we have to have live access in those moments, uh, whereas we are not used to seeing that kind of accessibility foregrounded in, you know, a regular night of watching television. So thinking about that to begin with, I started thinking about all of the different ways in which um, emergency media systems operate differently than. Um, commercial and public and online media systems. Uh, and one thing that I wanted to really emphasize in this book is that uh, we can think about emergency media in terms of who has access, uh, but that only gets us so far. Calling for more access or uh, expanding access to emergency services 
keeps us within a sort of liberal frame of uh, gaining access to the world as it is. Uh, and I wanted to push a little bit past that to see how emergency media are actually involved in how we understand the very definition of what is an emergency. Uh, and that if we want to think about emergency differently, then we're going to have to also think about mediating it differently, uh, understanding different kinds of circumstances as emergencies and uh, offering different kinds of resources and um, channels uh, for people to communicate uh, when they are experiencing emergency. So this is obviously people who study disaster and risk communication are just like, okay, this is, you know, and, and you published a, a really nice, um, I think overview of the book um, in uh, GCN.com in June of this year. And I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from it. Cause I think mm -hmm. it's, um, these are things people can relate to. You said um, it opens, you say on a spring day in 2020, residents of El Paso, Texas saw their phones light up with a text message, avoid parks, and family gatherings this Easter. Stay home, stay safe, do it for your loved ones. This message sent via the Federal Wireless Emergency Alert System was one of many designed to deliver COVID-19 related guidance directly to people's cell phones. And you know, I thought it was interesting because we're maybe grown a little bit used to receiving Amber Alerts on mm -hmm. cell phones, but not this kind of communication. And it raises just this question, is this an emergency? communication i mean the context of COVID is is a disaster it's an emergency although public officials in large parts of the united states also sent mixed messages of whether or not they saw yeah. it as an emergency so so you turn on the television or the radio and you hear one set of messages maybe coming from a governor's office another coming from a mayor's office a, a third coming from essential workers first responders and now my phone lights up and tells me what to do at easter it's a complicated yeah. array of messages. Absolutely. And I think you get at some of the real differences in this moment. And um, prior to 2019, something like 93, 94% of messages sent via the emergency wireless alert system were weather alerts, right? We, we've seen those. Um, to suddenly use the system for something different introduces a lot of questions about what people's expectations are and whether you are communicating in a way that is accepted and understood. Um, a lot of agencies didn't bother identifying themselves uh, in their first COVID emergency alert messages, which really undermines people's sort of understanding and trust about what's happening, right? This message is on my phone. I don't really understand who sent it. I don't really understand if I should trust them. Um, and then when we get into messages that conflict or overlap, it becomes even harder to understand um, how to parse this information. I think one of the things that is really interesting in this case too is that sending an emergency alert uh, which comes through any number of alerting authorities uh, is intended to produce some sort of change in how we feel and how we behave right we're supposed to receive an alert of an emergency and act differently than we would if it were not an emergency uh, but that isn't always what happens uh, people can still receive these communications and make choices to ignore them, delete them, uh, and most notably opt out of receiving future emergency alerts. So this is, um, there's so many angles to this. And then one I wanted to ask you about is about repetition and what the data mm -hmm. shows, what the research shows about repetition. This is something that people who have the responsibility of giving um, evacuation orders or um, you know, people in emergency management offices who have to, you know, if a storm is approaching, I mean, they really wrestle with this because yeah. they know if they give an order and then the storm doesn't come, then people look back at that and then they assess whether or not they should have paid attention to those orders. And some people say, yeah, that, you know, that's fine. I'll follow that even if it didn't, didn't work out. But there are many others who apparently the trust level goes down. So mm -hmm. now we're bringing that into into media 
um, that goes you know beyond what you hear on the on the news. It's actually arriving directly to me. What does the data show in terms of people's reaction to repetition? So that's an interesting question. I don't know that I have an answer about repetition per se, uh, but I can say that one of the pervasive fears in uh, FEMA and emergency management is about over alerting, that if we use the alert system too often, um, people will become inured to it, they'll turn it off. It will be like your neighbor's car alarm that goes off every weekend and you don't ever check to see if their car is okay. Uh, and so this fear of over alerting, I think in some ways leads to a decreased familiarity with the system. And um, if we think back, you know, if those of us who are old enough, remember the tests of the emergency broadcast system, right? The sense that we knew what a test sounded like and thus we would knew what ha would happen if an alert came. Uh, wireless alerts have largely moved forward without that testing. Uh, and certainly without a broader attempt to raise public awareness of what an emergency alert will look like and what you're expected to do with it. Hmm. These questions of trust and repetition uh, come into play in part because people are looking for other external signs about how to behave. Uh, so there's there are a few fascinating articles about uh, campus alerting and how college students react to getting alerts. Uh, and the first thing they do is look at each other. Right. We all got this alert. What are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it together? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do about it? Because they don't have a sense of what action is expected in that moment. Let's talk for a moment about the emergency alert that went out in Hawaii. I yeah. believe this was 2018. Is that right? People got a or 2017. I think it was I think it was earlier, 2016, 2017. People got an alert that told them that missiles were headed towards towards mm -hmm. Hawaii. This happened, I was just teaching, it was the beginning of a semester and I was teaching a disaster studies class actually at Drexel University. And and this was a really fascinating moment because just to your point just now, I asked the students in the class, well, what would you do if you had received, received this message? Um, and it broke down sort of one third, one third, one third. One third said they would call their family members or something. <laughs> they would turn to somebody outside of the classroom but in their social network for instruction. Another third said that they would look around in the classroom or to me for yeah. guidance and instruction. And the other third said that they would just, you know, do whatever they were told to <laughs> in that yeah. moment. It's, so what what happened in Hawaii and what did we learn from that in terms of the emergency alert system? Well, I think in Hawaii, we saw all of these reactions. And yeah. um, there were definitely people who took it very seriously and sought cover. There were also people who took it seriously and said, I'm going to the beach. Uh, if I'm going to, these are my last moments, I'm going somewhere I wanna be. Um, simultaneously, I've heard from residents of Hawaii that they were um, well aware of um, other emergency media in this area, sirens in particular, that would be activated in case of an actual missile threat. So when they get the text message and don't hear the sirens, they know something's wrong. Right, so you have all kinds of different reactions depending on what people's knowledge of that location is uh, and what their expectations or sort of personal um, orientations might be to this disaster. I think one of the things that comes out of this example that's really useful uh, is thinking about this question of how um, media don't only report emergency, they can create it. Uh, for people who are who received that alert uh, and believed it, they felt emergency for 38 minutes until the next alert told them it was a mistake, right? They felt this sort of panic, despair, um, calling their loved ones, all of this sort of stuff um, because they were told it was an emergency. So in some cases, when we're talking about emergency media, it's not just that it alerts us to things that have actually happened. It's that it creates emergency in our experience, regardless of what's happening. And sometimes that attempt to deem something an emergency uh, gets used for other purposes. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about how emergency alerts were used during Black Lives Matter protests to inform people of curfews, right? And so you have protesters who can't possibly get inside before the time of the curfew 
receiving an emergency alert that they interpret, I think, quite rationally as saying that they are the emergency. Uh, and thus they blow it off. It's policing by emergency alert. Is that when you, you know, in, use the phrase normalizing inequality in the title of the book? Is that the kind of thing that you have in mind? In part, I think when we talk about a lot of our emergency media systems, they're based around a very straightforward uh, emergency claim in the words of a political scientist named Jennifer Robinson. Emergency claims suggest that um, something has gone wrong, it is not normal, and it can be fixed with some kind of intervention. Now, an emergency claim understood like that means that some events can be, understand as, can be understood as emergencies really easily. Uh, my house is on fire, it wasn't on fire before, please put the fire out. Uh, and some things uh, don't register as emergencies in quite the same way. My neighborhood is prone to gun violence. It's been this way for 15 years. Please make it stop. Mm. Doesn't work as an emergency claim the same way my house is on fire does. And so these kinds of long disasters and uh, exacerbations of inequality in the sociocultural context don't often read as emergencies, which means they don't often receive the same kinds of assistance which means that often emergency functions in a fairly conservative way to keep things the way they are. Um, which is why towards the end of the book, I want to start pushing it towards thinking about redefinitions of emergency or other kinds of mediation that can incorporate more nebulous circumstances rather than constantly centering around this idea of a return to normal as if normal was always good. This takes us right back to what we were talking about with COVID, right? Um, we don't necessarily want to end this by returning to exactly the way things were before. Um, we want to be able to see this public health emergency and the tendrils of other emergencies it's created in people's lives and learn from that and create something different. Um, so yeah, thinking about emergency response beyond a return to normalcy. Uh, is a huge part of thinking about how emergency can become less invested in hierarchies and inequalities. I think that is a, such a powerful insight, and and it's it makes me think also that you know the emergency um, alert is circumscribed in such a way to make it seem apolitical. Mm -hmm. But it, but if just some additional information is added, suddenly it becomes political. And and here's you know what I what I mean like a emergency alert. So here in South Korea, we get heat warnings. Oh. So it's not unknown that in the summertime I get a text message that will tell me it's going to be really hot today. And these are really probably aimed mostly at seniors. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be really hot today, so you need to modify. Um, what you're doing. I think in, in the United States, in some municipalities, you get these around air quality. If you opt mm -hmm. in, it's going to be an air quality action day. So you need to modify your activities outdoors. And I always thought if they just added a few more characters to say, um, this is part of climate change, or, you know, just to give a little more information of why you're getting so many of these now, mm -hmm. that that would tip it. First of all, that would that's exactly the information people need to know. But that's that's not the emergency and so that's not involved in the discussion that's kind of a crude couple of crude examples but I, I think that may be moving into the territory that you're suggesting here yeah absolutely i think that that's a great example of an alert that often treats every incident as isolated rather than as part of a bigger picture um and some of that has to do i think with um an attempt to seem apolitical uh, or a sense that alerts are not about broader education. Uh, but it gets back to some of what I was saying about trust as well, being able to provide that context, being able to educate the public about not only what this alert calls you to do, but why um, is something that alerts can and should do um, in order to allow people to make sense of these things outside of discrete moments and see the bigger picture. There's another facet of this that I'm interested to see how you connect um, to the Cold War, because, you know, 
when I was growing up every Saturday at noon, the, the civil defense siren went off. Yep. And, and so you have an ambivalent reaction to our idea. On the one hand, it's kind of scary, you know, well, there's a siren going off. And the first few times it happened, your, my parents would explain, well, this is why this happens. Um, and it was meant to be reassuring, right? That the authorities were, were testing for the big ones so that when it, <laughs> and when it came, you were going to hear the siren, but then when you get a little older and then you ask your parents, well, what would happen if it went off? Yeah. The answer to that question is, well, you know, we're, we all die. So what was the point of the siren in the first place? It was to get us to do nonsensical things. So it's a performativity. It's a government, it's, a, you know, government performing diligence and Lee Clark and others have written about this extensively. Absolutely. So I, I like to know how you translate that into, into your work, you know, right now. I mean, if the government sends me a message, if a city or a state sends me a message or the federal government saying, be concerned about COVID. Um, but then they don't offer me any resources or my governor is, is actively denying COVID and these mixed messages. It just, it's like the performance of care. It's the performance mm -hmm. of diligence. It's got me excited about it. And then I find out, oh, the whole political economy is wrecked, but I'm sure glad I got this text message. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting to connect to that sort of Cold War history because um, some of the COVID alerts do try to tell people what to do. And sometimes those instructions are, you know, counterindicated a couple of weeks or months later. Um, so recommendations about disinfecting your groceries uh, go out and then, you know, you don't actually have to do that. Uh, so we start to see instruction and uh, attempts to provide information that are, um, as you say, potentially uh, more a sign of government action, a sense that we are doing something uh, than they are effective. Uh, and they're also often pretty uh, ignorant of context. So here in Virginia, we had a contact tracing app. Uh, it actually is still operative called COVIDWISE uh, that attempts to use Bluetooth to track the phones that your phone has been near. Uh, and if someone receives a positive COVID test and reports it to the Virginia Department of Health, then they will tell all the phones that were around your phone during that period. Uh, and that message, if you receive it, uh, comes with instructions like, oh, now you need to quarantine for two weeks. But there's absolutely no support when we need to quarantine, right? You're not going to get lost wages. You're not going to get quarantine, uh, I'm sorry, childcare to help uh, during those weeks. You have actually no capacity to make the changes that are sometimes recommended. And so I think that's one area in which um, this kind of emergency mediation is um, not particularly effective. It may tell you what to do, but it provides no information about how to do that or how to receive support while doing that. I mean, to me, and I don't want to sound cynical about this, I agree with you completely. And I'd go a step further and say that's a text message I'm receiving telling me to have a dysfunctional society. It's like, mm. here's a warning, democracy is broken. I mean, I see, I see the alert, but I see something yeah, else behind it. And I don't think I'm alone. I mean, I, in that regard. And I, I think I'm just really glad that you've done this work. I can't wait to get this book. We're almost up on time. I, I, I wanted sure. to get one more thing on the table before we wrap up. And that's um, about emergency information and data and the way you see news mm. media, legacy media um, dealing with it. You know, we live in an age of data, data journalism now. Uh, the, I read the statistics from the Hopkins coronavirus um, dashboard every day. Um, you know, the New York Times now has become a, a set of interactives. I mean, that's really yeah. what you, when you go online and, and experience it. Um, I'm fascinated by that. I think obviously they keep doing it because people interact and then they see more advertisements or they move to Absolutely. other news stories. Um, I wonder what you think about that. Is this a permanent feature of media now, this sort of like interactive feature and, and, um, as we were talking about before, complicating, re talking about really complicated things um, and with the, the sort of seduction of the graph that then draws you in and makes you think that you've understood something when in fact, maybe you didn't understand it as deeply as you thought you did. 
Yeah, I think you raise a lot of the points that I would have brought up, um, particularly that I think interactive uh, dashboards and so on are really great engagement engines for advertising driven uh, pages. Absolutely, they keep people coming back and clicking and doing things in a way that print journalism doesn't. I also think that there is um, potentially a really clear legacy here to the kinds of election night maps that we're used to seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Which state is red, which state is blue. Um, the kinds of color coding that we see on COVID maps, uh, usually, but not always, moving from a sort of yellow to maroon, uh, allowing us to interpret some things as better and some things as worse. Uh, are similarly simplistic, and you can engage in similar kinds of map critique about what it means when a very populous state is a certain color versus what it means when all of Montana is that color. Um, these are not equivalent, uh, but they're being presented as if they were. We also see these maps making choices about what kinds of data to include and not include that are really interesting. Um, one example is that early in the pandemic, um, rates of COVID infection were displayed as higher in counties that had nursing homes or prisons, right? Congregate housing situations in which COVID was rampant. Uh, and what comes out of that is actually the New York Times now has a map of only nursing homes uh, so that the data in the aggregate doesn't include um, those counties as outliers to the same degree. <clears throat> of course, the takeaway there is that nursing homes, prisons are being treated as outliers, as exceptions, and as not part of the sort of true numbers for those counties, right? right? As if those people don't really have COVID um, or those people are not valuable in the same way. So I think we see a lot of this happening, um, both in an attempt to inform people and in a an attempt to engage people. My worry about these uh, kinds of data visualizations long-term uh, is sort of twofold. First, they're almost always inaccessible to disabled people. Uh, even creating alternate text for a static graph is difficult. Uh, creating an accessible version of an interactive map that changes as you sort of mouse over it uh, is extremely difficult and frankly most sites don't even try so you have a whole host of people who are left out of these um, either due to you know disability and accessibility concerns um, lack of chart reading literacy uh, slow computers location broadband access all of these things and, but also these are things that sort of trouble me as I wouldn't call myself a historian, but I do historical work enough uh, that I think about, you know, if we did research into the 1918 flu, we can look at newspaper articles. In 50 years, looking at the Johns Hopkins right. map, I don't know what's gonna be there, right? Digital artifacts are notoriously hard to preserve, uh, hard to run on future systems. The database that powers those systems might still exist, but will it be accessible? Uh, there are real questions about how this mediation of uh, information can or will persist in the future or how much of it we're just going to lose, I mean, as soon as next year. So just wrapping up real quick, next project. Haven't decided. Uh, I take a rest. The, the new one. The book's year. not even out yet. Sorry, I don't the need book's to press you. Not even out yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm tying up loose ends. I have bits and pieces on baby monitors and old phone trees where I call you and you call two people and they call two people yeah. um, that I still want to put together in some format. Um, I have a lot of data from student focus groups about campus safety and sort of impressions of what technologies make them feel safer and what don't. Um, so I'm pulling a lot of that together. Um, I'm also really coming to focus uh, a lot on this access work uh, that I talked about um, in terms of uh, education contexts, but the work of making something accessible, um, the work of um, 
increasing access in various spaces is often uh, left out of the stories we tell about media industries or educational contexts, uh, or IT for that matter. Um, so th these are sort of marginalized workers. Uh, and so I'm interested in exploring that expertise moving forward. Okay, well, we want to read all of it. So keep it coming. Um, and just a reminder that the new book is in case of emergency, how technologies mediate crisis and normalize inequality. And we'll be looking for that uh, early next year. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6pm Eastern time today is uh, a two day two a day COVID calls for me. I'm in um, Asia, you'll be uh, hearing a second COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. today, November 4th, Korea time. I'll be talking to Dr. Vipul Shaw, uh, who's an advocate for long COVID sufferers and for children uh, in India. So please do join me for that. And let me thank my guest today, Elizabeth Elsasor, um, for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for making time. Uh, learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Thank you.